welcome to another episode of Between the Bites, weekly discussions on business, IT, and cybersecurity. My name is Derek Parkinson. I am James Fair. And today we are joined by Steve Oren. Steve is the CTO at Intel Corporation. Steve, how's it going today? Doing well. Thanks for having me today. Awesome. Steve, let's kick things off with a quick introduction on your end. Tell us uh, what it is you do and kind of how you got there. Sure. So as mentioned, I'm the federal CTO for Intel Corporation. And in that role, I uh, represent Intel's technologies and capabilities to the federal government and the broader public sector, both how to understand how our technologies and our larger ecosystem can enable the government's mission and its enterprise systems and architectures, as well as then translating back into Intel the requirements, the needs, and the uh, focus areas of the federal government to the Intel business units. So it's really a two-way focused role, uh, both advocating for both sides. Uh, and it provides a unique opportunity to really go off and solve really big, hairy problems for the federal customers. Um, I've been in this role now for uh, going on 10 years. Prior to that, I ran security pathfinding for Intel's, which is basically the two to five year horizon innovation projects around security capabilities and security use cases that were emerging as the hardware and the software ecosystems were evolving. And then prior to that, I ran multiple security startups throughout the 90s and 2000s in a variety of the cybersecurity domains. So it's been an exciting fun ride as I've gotten to look at a variety of different areas of both cybersecurity and now broader at the bigger, you know, sort of big problems around AI, around edge computing, data center and cloud, everything that comes together and security is sort of an overlay or an underlay, depending on how you look at it, that needs to be there, needs to be focused on at every aspect of the deployment and development lifecycle. Then in your years, especially in that cybersecurity sector, which is something that has definitely reared its head in a very big way over the last few years, what kind of changes or trends have you noticed through your experience? So it's a really good question, Derek, and I think we can look at it from two perspectives. If you look at the early days and how things have evolved, it was an evolution where you know there was a problem and we you know a technology would evolve and people would say, okay, that's going to solve our problem. Whether it was firewalling, to PKI and advanced encryption, multi-factor authentication. Every time there was a new approach, you know, we had the web come out in the 2000s as a major area of business, so we needed web firewalls, we needed web scanning. And so we took that sort of incremental, every time there was something new, we needed to secure that thing. And I liken it to a whack-a-mole, trying to constantly keep up with the ever-changing landscape. If we look now, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, everything is much more integrated than it's ever been before. And so you can't take a one domain focus to security. So we're seeing a lot more of a holistic approach, or as people talk about the risk-based approaches. And zero trust is just the next evolution of that risk-based looking across my systems, across my businesses. And that shift has happened over the last five to six years of understanding that you can't just solve the whatever the widget is your problem because you're not going to be able to solve that problem nor the bigger problems that are really systemic within the organization or within the enterprise. And so I, we've seen this really transition to a more holistic view to looking all the way through the supply chain and the development lifecycle and into the deployment and operations and maintenance and looking at them together, that there's a connectiveness that wasn't really addressed early, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s as cybersecurity was evolving and growing up. And I think as we look forward, whether it be the introduction of AI and how it's changing everything that we're doing today, when you think about how do I secure AI, a lot of the conversation isn't, well, I need to secure this algorithm. It's understanding the lifecycle, understanding all the things it touches, and how do we secure those? And so we're 
we're seeing people take that more risk-based approach, that more holistic approach to securing, you know, whatever the next you know thing we have, which is now uh, everyone's talking AI, but that will be today, you know, two weeks from now, there'll be another thing that we need to all secure, but it's how we go about, it, I think is what's ultimately been shifting, which is a good track to be on. Agreed. So then in the recent years, especially since uh, COVID hit and that changed a lot for companies and organizations, what are some key focus points or initiatives that you've worked with inside the organization? So Derek, you bring up an interesting point. I think COVID, in the beginning of COVID, it was all about remote work. Everyone was looking at how do I change the model? How do I support you know, going from like a five to 10% of my workforce being remote to 95% or more of my workforce being remote. And so a lot of focus early on was enabling the remote worker to have full access to the systems and protecting that extension of the perimeter. And I think they learned quickly that, that even that those terms I just used were false premise because it's not an extension, there is no perimeter. The world is your perimeter now. And that shift then was focusing on, well, how do I secure the services I want to deliver to, whether it be a remote worker, a business partner, or an entity that I'm trying to interact with, that could be an edge sensor. And so the idea of shifting from, well, I need to, again, you know, protect the worker to how do I deliver my capabilities, whether it be enterprise IT services or business functions as a service or as a capability set to the constituents, to the consumers of those services and those capabilities. And that shift has, has been why we've seen things like Zero Trust start to take off is looking at from a transactional model, whether it be a, a remote worker dialing in or enabling edge computing or a branch office computing to be able to work in that same kinds of model. A lot of the, the programs we've been working with in the federal space, obviously the early days, a lot of remote work across every agency was a challenge. And then looking at things like multi-factor authentication and various different trust models for how do I assess the trust and how do I protect data through its entire life cycle. But then we look at some of the notions that they're talking about now with the interconnected warfighter, the interconnected mission space. And it doesn't matter if you're talking DOD and the warfighter, or you're talking forestry and a, a forest ranger out in the field, checking the health of the uh, forest and of the trees, enabling those certain, the connectivity of the, of the human in the field with the sensors and the, and the components that are providing it with the backend services they need to be able to execute their mission. A great example of what technology and the integration of different technologies have been able to accomplish was with forestry using drones to map out the forest and look for blight, which is a common disease you find in, in trees. And being, you know, if you were to rely solely on a human walking the trails, A, it's, you know, there's no way you're going to get the scope and scale, and B, you're only going to see the trees that you can really easily see from the trail. By sending out semi-autonomous drones to go out and map and look, you can get off the trail, you can get a lot bigger scale and scope and a lot more time in theater than a, a human walking the trails, plus add in a little AI to be able to do recognition of the difference between moss and blight or shadow and blight. They were able to get in significant orders of magnitude, better early warning, early identification, and better coverage to be able to contain that. And that same architectural approach is how you would address things that, you know, where you're talking about the Navy trying to track, you know, sort of adversaries in the water or being able to have, you know, army folks be able to, you know, the warfighter be able to sense what's going around them, get situational awareness. It's about how do I connect to the sensors, connect to the people and be disconnected and operational. And when you think about what is the security you need, you need to be able to secure the device without having to rely on, you know, on home base because you're often disconnected or you have limited connectivity and you need to be operational. You can't wait for someone to make a decision back at HQ. So you need to have more real-time access, 
which means you have real-time security requirements. And that requires a shift in how you deploy security. And one of the, the foundations is taking a data-centric approach. If you can protect the data, no matter where it lives, then you can make decisions on that data where you need it, when you need it, as opposed to, well, I need to download data from the, from the cloud in order to be able to do my job. And that model just doesn't work in the more real-time world we live in today. Very well said. For sure. I would be curious. Uh, James here has worked with, through Executech, the FBI, quite a bit on, on his end, and then you in the federal sector as well. I would be curious to hear from both of you about key differences, for better or for worse, what it is working with the private versus federal sectors, whether it's pace of adaptation, which I'm sure is, is definitely a, a big one. Do you guys do a controlled breathing meditation, anything like that to, <laughs> to, to, to increase your patience? I'd like to hear from both of you on that. Sure. So there, I think there's, a, there's pros and cons of working in the public sector. And this is whether you're a big company like Intel or you're a startup, the sales cycles and the process of getting technology adoption is long. Even in the simple procurement, there's a lot more steps. There's a contractual steps that you don't find in private, private sector. If a bank wants a technology, they go buy the technology. They deploy early access, you know, betas into labs. They're much more nimble. The government, on the other hand, there's a much longer lead cycle around getting anything adopted at scale. Now, there are pockets of innovation where they can do really fast things across DOD and the civilian, uh, and there's groups like DIU and others that are stood up to help make that quicker, but it is absolutely a longer cycle. The flip side is, A, you got bigger budgets. I mean, the problems that the government is solving is bringing the full power of the government budget to bear. And one of the things I really like to point out about the federal market in general and public sector is you can find every use case and vertical that you'd find in the private sector in the public sector. You want to talk insurance and healthcare, the VA is the largest insurer and the largest healthcare provider. You want to talk financial services between IRS, obviously, but also CMS, Medicaid, Medicare, that are doing payments at a larger scale than most banks do. And you want to talk about, you know, sort of manufacturing and, and, re, and those kind of things. You've got that inside, you know, the, the building of planes and ships. So you find corollaries to the entire private sector within the one customer of the federal government, depending on which agency and which part of the agency you're working for. The other challenge is that the requirements are often much harder to meet. You have security requirements that go well beyond what you find in the private sector. And often you have scale or edge requirements that are not the same, you know, mill spec as far as the, the environmental conditions, the data controls because of classification or sensitivities that you don't necessarily find in the private sector. But if you solve it for the federal government, odds are you've got a pretty good solution that can be easily commercialized that will cover the use cases that you'll find at the banks or at the retail healthcare and other organizations. James, I'm curious, are you seeing similar in your interactions? Yeah, I, I, you covered it far better than I could, Steve, but yeah, very much. Things are long process, lots of requirements, lots of red tape to go through. The caveat being that there are times when federal spending is available, like we saw during COVID. So suddenly everyone has, not everyone, but many municipalities have money that they want to spend on their infrastructure. So I don't see that very necessarily very often in the like the small and medium business. Maybe they got an influx of new investors or something like that. But in general, we don't see a big influx of money that needs to be spent up to a certain amount that we have to adhere to. So, but yeah, in general, across the board is very similar with one being much slower adopters, which when they do adopt, they adopt it well, they do it full out, they do it very expensively. 
They do it very securely. It's just a much longer, longer process, and they're definitely not bleeding edge typically, at least not in my experience. Now, that does bring up a question, if I may, Steve. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious, one thing you said early on that really caught my attention was that the government, I don't want to say dictates, but to some degree, you know, determines the technological direction that Intel goes or based on the feedback you get from them. So how does that work? How do you take input from something as big as a federal government and ascertain what's important and put that into a product? So it's a really good question. And when you look at Intel, Intel is in a unique position in that for, with very few exceptions, customers don't buy direct from Intel. You know, the federal government doesn't go and buy their chips from Intel. They buy systems from Dell or HP, or they buy cloud services from Amazon and Google, and Intel's inside. And so from one respect, we are somewhat a, somewhat a neutral party or more of an advisor about how the technology can enable without having to worry about where they go get that product, because they'll get it from whoever their OEM or, or ecosystem channel is, and it will have the Intel parts and Intel capabilities. So our role with the government is to help understand their, what they're trying to accomplish or how technology can help them. As far as advising the business units, really it's, it comes from two angles. Number one, the government is a large consumer of, of semiconductor technology, just like Amazon, just like Facebook, just like a Citibank. Everyone, large customers consume lots of technology. So it's important for us to understand their requirements and their needs to make sure our products meet those current and future requirement sets. So we have a team of folks that they're focused on the various different parts of the federal government to hear and to work with them to understand where they're where they are today and where they're trying to go to whether you talk about the DISA with the multi-cloud the jwcc what is that going to look like what are the features they need and a lot of what intel does is really making sure that those systems can scale can operate the performance requirements can do it at the power requirements and can provide whether it be the security or the acceleration capabilities for the workloads they're trying to do and from one hand, it's direct feedback of here are the requirements that this program or this government customer needs or this use case is driving. The other part that I think makes my job really exciting and interesting is what I call the federalization of commercial products and the commercialization of federal. So on one hand, when the, I look at a government agency and they're trying to do something hard and I look at them saying, you know what, we actually solved a similar problem for a grocery store by doing user tracking with, with cameras and detecting, you know, how high they're reaching for products. That same problem could help with your, you know, human computer interface design that you're trying to do for better interaction with your, with the warfighter. And I could take a commercial solution and, you know, it's 80% of the way there and then customize it for a federal customer to fit it into or to work with their ecosystem to take that commercial product and federalize it. And the flip side is also true. When I get, you know, I'll pick on the multi-cloud because it's a great example. The federal government is really pushing hard on multi-cloud where we're not seeing it as, as widely adopted yet in commercial spaces. And people are still stuck in the whole cloud lock-in or they've got their set of service providers. The government is pushing really hard to say, I want to have choice and I don't want to have lock-in. And I want to be able to distribute my workloads across the cloud. So they're going to work with the, you know, with the big cloud providers and Intel and other technologies to try to build out the right architecture to support that cross-domain scaling. Taking that federal design solution and bringing it to the broader market so that the banking industry, as they look at better choice of cloud providers or the services that need to enable that, we're seeing that commercialization of federal also happen. And another great example where the federal government is leading is in security standards, whether it be NIST guidance around post-quantum crypto or FIPS requirements for the security of keys. You see those starting out as government standards. So you can't build a system for the US government without FIPS and without these kind of requirements. 
but you're starting to see those same requirements show up in RFPs and in quotes from banking, from healthcare, from critical infrastructure, because the government's created a good baseline for what is acceptable security and certification, so you don't have to go reinvent the wheel. So if you solve it for the government, you're gonna be able to solve it for not just the US, but also for global governments and global businesses. Excellent answer, thank you, Steve. So does this analysis of the federal government's needs does that feed into the R and D develop, you know, the research and development then of Intel and where they're going to head as well? So they are kind of steering the ship to some degree. I mean, it's a need thing, obviously, but I would say steering the ship is probably a little strong. Okay, it's input. When you look at what products you build, you're looking for what are the demand signals and what are the requirements that will meet those demand signals. The federal government, as a large consumer of technology, is absolutely one of those north star customer sets that drives requirements. The opportunity of when a feature makes it into hardware is really driven by scale. You know, when we, we're going to add an acceleration for an algorithm or we're going to increase the buffer size to support certain math for AI algorithms, that's driven by customer need today as well as where we project the research is going. And so we take those indicators from a variety of sources. You know, DARPA projects are driving next generation technology design as a key input. The supercomputers in Europe are driving workloads that we're seeing those inputs of what's needed. So we get those indicators and those North Stars from a variety of sources. The government just happens to be a really rich source of information, but that gets fed into you know a product lifecycle process of understanding the requirements and making sure that what we're building meets broad set of global governments and global business. The good news is right now, a lot of the government requirements are not dissimilar from what you'll find in other customer bases. The same scaling that a large uh, government agency needs to do for its data center and cloud architectures is exactly what a Facebook or a bank needs for its cloud architectures. And so part of the, the work that our planners do on the requirements is pull from all these resources and be able to create, you know, we've got opportunities to build our capabilities to meet these future use cases. And we have government and healthcare and retail and, and manufacturing all providing those sort of indicators and those demand signals that come in. We also have the capability of working with the government ecosystem. So taking an existing commercial SKU, a commercial product, working with one of the primes to then be able to help them create the bespoke unique solutions that they need out of commercial projects. So while the volumes that a government needs for, you know, for a platform like a ship or a plane may not be the same as you'd find in the cloud, but working with the ecosystem that supports those platforms so they can then do the customization is a lot of how we then force multiply taking commercial products and drive them into the federal. And I'm picking on the U.S. government, but this is, you know, global capability around, you know, every government has unique capabilities, unique requirements, and rely on an ecosystem of partners to help them meet those goals. Excellent. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for the clarification. You mentioned global. So since we're on the topic, there's a lot of drive right now and a lot of eyes on these global challenges, climate change, healthcare, education. Is that something... Intel plays, plays in and in what way, if I may ask? So there's, it's a really good question. And I think the way to think about it is sort of two sides. Let's talk about it from a technology perspective, how we're enabling the plays in those environments, and then also how we as a corporation act in that respect. So I'll start with the technology one. The systems that are doing the analysis of, of weather, of climate change, and of shifts in temperatures and those things, those are run on supercomputers. Those are running on Intel platforms and cloud architectures that are leveraging Intel. And so whether it be 
the latest one, the exascale computer that's just got stood up at Argonne National Labs to many of the ones that you find across the US and Europe that are doing the climate change science are running on Intel. And so we work closely with those researchers and those institutions to optimize their code, to get more power, more performance out of those codes that they're writing to do those calculations. That's where a lot of the interaction between Intel and the ecosystem happens is in looking at, you know, they want to be able to do this kind of math. They want to do this kind of workload, this kind of job and using our best and brightest to help, you know, eke out even that one second of performance improvement across the scale of a supercomputer is monumental. And so definitely on the areas, you know, climate change, being able to, do, to provide education to the masses. Well, part of that is being able to get cheaper, lighter weight and low power devices into the hands of children in Africa or teachers across Asia. And that's driving the technology to be able to enable that book, that notebook or that laptop or that desktop that A, don't have to be as power hungry because there's places where power, you know, electricity is the constraint. Being able to do multiple communications across things like 5G and wireless, you know, to be able to deal with the different kinds of environments you'll find for connectivity across the world and being able to shrink that down into small form factors that can be deployed at a lower cost that can then enable education at a global scale. So technology is absolutely an enabler on both sides of those major sort of societal issues. Just to pick one other example, during COVID, there was a lot of work on precision medicine, on doing the analysis of the virus, of looking at effectiveness of the various vaccines. And what we saw is both the big HPCs tackling those big problems, but then we also saw a lot of these sort of gene folding and heterogeneous distributed compute architectures. Basically, you know, laptops and desktops are small server stacks contributing to the overall science. And part of what made that happen was having the commonality of protocols, having the communication systems be able to handle the data flows and the ingestion and processing of the data in a highly distributed world. A lot of that technology and architecture is built by Intel and by our ecosystem. So that's the technology enabler side, which is exciting, you know, as a, as a technologist. But then there's also, you know, the, the corporate responsibility and Intel being, you know, on a, a forefront of helping to educate and helping to get to bring up. One great example is, you know, we're building a new fab in Ohio. And part of what we did is we invested in the local universities, the local high schools and education systems to help get, you know, the STEM sciences prioritized and help augment what was already being done across those universities and those high schools and elementary schools, K through 12 to get the STEM resources they need to create the workforce we all want in the next generation. I, mean, we, I pick on Ohio because that's the one that's you know, near and dear to us, but this is a global mission across the world of how do we help technology, but also technology awareness, technology fluency is a game changer for everyone across the world. The more technology literate the next generation is, the better they will be able to enter the workforce, provide for their families and make a difference wherever they are across the world. Similarly, we also you know, have initiatives and there's you know, articles about this around our green initiatives. We have one of the first solar powered fabs in Oregon where we're using uh, the solar power on the top of buildings and on, on the parking structures to help power the creation of semiconductors. And so there are initiatives that we do from a corporation really targeting education and healthcare and climate change and really helping to give back in that perspective. That's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for what your organization and maybe for what you personally do for that. That's, 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 that's awesome. Thank you. One last question for me, if I may. So for our listeners, you know, some of them are aspiring technologists, you know, what advice would you give them for building a successful career? Maybe for being the next Steve Allred in the world? 
I, I would give you two pieces of advice. Number one, go try things, go break things. That's one of the things that served me well throughout my career is just get your hands on things. If you want to learn a new topic, read about it, but then go do it. You know, I, I, one of the things I tell people who are getting into cybersecurity is get a system, disconnect it, and download Kali and Metasploit and go play with exploits. Some advice I was given very early in my career from one of my mentors was before you start figuring out how to secure a system, you need to understand how to break a system. And that's really the mindset of successful cybersecurity professionals is they understand how things fall apart, how a hacker works, how to break into a system. And that gives you the building block tools you need to secure it. So Bruce Schneier, who was one of my early mentors, you said you can't build a crypto system unless you know how to do crypto analysis. So start breaking algorithms first. And the same thing holds true of any cybersecurity domain. So even if you're not in security, if you're going to do AI, or you're going to go play with the tools. The tools are open source and available and free. And that's really the best way to get familiar with what's currently available and what's coming. Go play with the tools, play with Python. And then the other is reach out and create community. There are communities out there for, you know, and they've been there. What's interesting is that we talk about the community of technologists, but they've been around for a long time. The idea of IRC chat channels back in the early days. And now, you know, when we have social media and everything, you know, and, and Discord and, and, and all the different chat channels, finding community is really how we all interact and become better because the network of people is really what drives a lot of that innovation because you may not have the answer, but your community will. Or you may not know where to apply your cool idea and you can get that from your community. And it's also where you'll find your mentors. And that, I think that's also one of the key things that's helped me is finding good mentors throughout my career so I can suck their brains dry. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you, Steve. I like that call out a lot. Since working at Executech, I have caught on in that, especially I think in the IT and cybersecurity world, and I'm sure there's plenty of other specialties out there that are similar it is a lot more open for people reaching out to each other and asking questions if you're just getting started or if you have a really specific problem and you want to do a cold outreach basically to a to a professional there's a pretty high chance that they're willing to to have a conversation with you maybe that's just cuz nerds like us tend to be nice <laughs> and we like to talk about what we like but whatever it is it is a great industry to build community. And I, I completely agree. Absolutely. And we do like to talk. I think that's one of the things that drives uh, a lot of the cybersecurity <laughs> for professionals. You know, as you and I both know DEF CON is coming up in a couple of weeks and that's where that's right. somewhere between 20 and 50,000 of all of our cybersecurity friends are going to come together and there'll be a lot of talking, a lot of joint innovation and a lot of really cool papers published. Yep, we were just on with um, Chet, who works at Sophos. I mean, he's one of their uh, data analysts, and and he's pretty excited for DefCon coming up. <laughs> I don't think he's he's missed a convention in quite a few years now. I, I hear you. With the exception of COVID, that was the one that really hurt. I've been going since '96, and I had to take three years yeah. off, and it's like I missed my DefCon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So a question I have, Steve, I'm curious to see how it affects, especially your position being in a more on the federal side, but dealing with competition and namely, I mean, there's been Intel's been Intel for so long that it was probably one of the first tech things that I ever learned growing up was what your processors did and just how powerful they were. But in the recent years, you know, AMD has launched their their Ryzen processor, which has done really well. And then, of course, Apple and their M1. Does that affect your role? And how do you guys work to overcome that? So, Derek, you bring a good question. So, first of all, 
competition is is good in any industry. You need to have Absolutely. strong competition to keep you you know nimble, but also to to help provide the right set of capabilities for the broader government, the broader customer base, even outside of government. And you will find a company like Intel will have competition and frenemies in different places, depending on what we're trying to do. You know, a lot of people point to NVIDIA as a as one of Intel's competition, and absolutely, but not just directly with our GPU business, but also as workloads are tr transitioning back and forth from GPU to CPU. In that respect, there could be seen as competition. But they're also driving the industry forward. They've really helped create this AI market that we're all going to benefit from. At the same time, you can't really deploy a GPU unless you have a CPU along for the ride as well. So. There's co-opetition, there's frenemies. It's an interesting world to be in. And when you look at it from the perspective at Intel, there is a large enough marketplace for everyone to be successful. And the analysts make a big deal about, well, you know, Intel's losing market share or AMD's lost market share. We're talking about points here. It's not like the other space, like MySpace went away and now you only have Facebook. The market is a shifting target. And every time we turn around, there's a subtle changes. I think that having competition is absolutely important because it keeps us all nimble. But also there are times when we have to come together. And I think one of the things I've seen in the government space, which is I don't necessarily think you see in a lot of the others, is where we bring together our competition to help solve some of the bigger problems, whether that be platform resilience from a couple of years ago with the NIST standards of how do we recover from a destructive attack? That was the challenge, the gauntlet that NIST and the federal government put down is thinking about the Saudi Aramco permanent denial service attack. How would you bring back a system in 24 hours or less, a, a large-scale data center? That required Intel and AMD and all of the component providers working together and saying, what would be a common standard for secure firmware update and for being able to get back to known good state in a way that then all of the OEMs are getting HP and Dell and Supermicro and all the others, everyone together to try to solve that big auspicious goal. Similarly with things like post-quantum cryptography, we're all working together because we know if it's going to be successful to be able to have the next generation algorithms, it has to run across everybody. So you'll find that while you know out in the field, the salespeople are competing against each other, and that's good for business for everybody. But we also have to work together when it comes to the big goals of you know how do we secure the infrastructure, how do we deal with next generation threats. And so there's a lot of collaboration that happens, and the government is a really good place for that to happen because it it brings together everyone from a technology perspective. How do we go either solve the problem? or adopt the right standards to be able to scale it for everybody. I love it. And James, that sounds an awful lot like a disaster recovery plan, uh, which uh, <laughs> we've talked a lot about, and obviously here in the MSP world, but on a very national and uh, large scale. So that's great to hear. Now to switch eyes again towards the future here, what's on your radar or, or what thoughts do you have on the future of technology and cybersecurity as a whole? So Derek, I think I would cut it into two, maybe three areas. I mean, one, we can't talk about security today without talking about AI. And I think there are three sides of a coin, if you will, maybe it's a die that we have to look at. Number one, as everyone is adopting AI, whether it be the cool new stuff on large language models, or even some of the, you know, the more, you know, let's call it two week old AI, like the combination of neural networks and like, how do we secure that? How do I trust? that system that's making real decisions on business, on people's lives. And so being able to secure the AI that we're deploying is one thing that is absolutely on top of mind of a lot of people. And it's going to continue to evolve to be a challenge because it's not just the AI I'm deploying today, but how do I trust everything that went into it? So that's the, the bias in the data sets, the training infrastructure, looking at poisoning. And so those are some of the questions we're asking today as an industry. 
The next side of that coin is how do I use AI to affect cybersecurity, whether it be sort of the, the detection model of using an A to augment the automated scanning or the identification of anomalous behaviors to deploying patches at scale by being able to do a lot of that preemptive testing or evaluation using some of the AI tools, being able to look at network topologies and be able to assess risk in advance of deploying a system. So we're seeing AI be applied to a variety of the cybersecurity domains. And especially as we look at things like risk-based decision-making, you can't have a human in a loop for all of those decisions. So an AI and machine learning model is absolutely going to be crucial to deploy those risk things at scale. Then the last thing is recognizing that the adversaries are using AI as well. And so there's the counter AI, the detecting the use of AI side of the camp. And so how do I know if that chatbot I'm talking to is a chatbot or is that phishing email you know, AI generated or is it looks really good? It looks like good English. Is it really for my bank? And so we're seeing a lot of you know, deep fake detection is a great example of where it's the cat and mouse, the deep fake algorithms get better, the detectors get better and back and forth. So being able to counter AI when it comes to a cybersecurity or a threat perspective is going to be a key part of that ongoing strategy. So I think the one area of focus that's hot on everyone's mind is AI, and that's absolute. I think the other area we have to keep in mind is that you know as people are starting to adopt this zero trust the model, a zero trust approach, whatever that means, and understanding that this is a journey. We're never going to be, you know, buy a product, you got zero trust, you're done. But it doesn't mean that once we get pretty far down that road that the cyber adversaries are going to pack up shop and go you know, open coffee shops. They're going to find new ways of coming at organizations and getting at data. And so the next generation of thinking is going to be, okay, what's next? Where are the gaps? What are the low-hanging fruit that come after we do more transactional security and we start you know, default denying, preventing lateral movement? As an industry, we're going to have to start thinking about what are the next areas that we need to focus on to advance security going forward. I like that a lot. Yeah. Now, before I change gears a little bit and, and get into uh, some questions I have on, on leadership and stuff, James, do you have any more tech questions to ask him before, before we move on? No, I think we covered them really well. All right. Well, Steve, I'm curious to hear what it's like being in a leadership role at, at your level in, in such a large corporation and what are some lessons that you've learned along the way as you rose up to that role? So Derek, it's a very interesting role to be, you know, being a leadership at a company the size of Intel. I think uh, number one, it's the impact that you can have. You know, that just think about the number of systems out there that have Intel technology. One of the best examples of a project I worked on early at Intel, when I came out of my, my, one of our successful startups, we had our product installed at 500 of the Fortune 1000 companies, which by startup standards, that's a huge win. That's a big deal. And it was a very big success. The first project I worked on in a leadership role at Intel went into 40 million PCs. And so just the scale and impact you get at a company like Intel is really what make, keeps it exciting. I think from, you know, when you talk about you know, sort of leadership and the, and the opportunity at a company the size of Intel, it's the scale and scope, not just of how many people we can affect, but also when you think about the technologies and where Intel is, we're in the client, we're in the network, we're in the data center cloud, we're in the edge processing. And so one of the interesting things is when at, at my level, I can look across different domains. So while we have a division dedicated to client systems and a, a division dedicated to network and a division dedicated to cloud, in my role, I get the opportunity to look across them and see what, what can I do to pull together the best of these different business units to provide an actual solution to the customer as opposed to a set of ingredients that go into an ecosystem or go into an OEM channel. 
And so I think one of the exciting things about being a CTO at Intel is that being able to look across domain and drive innovation that jumps out of the various different you know, sort of business unit silos that you have. And I think that's been one of the more exciting things. And the other is the opportunity to mentor. And I've seen this throughout my career, both you know, at large companies like Intel, but also when I was CTO for some of my startups, is seeing where the people who work for me go next or growing them to go to that next level, whether it be my chief architect going off and starting multiple successful startups of his own to inside the company, seeing people who work for me go on and become CTOs in their own right. That's really, you know, so for me as a leader, that's one of the, you know, those things that, A, I get a lot of pride of, but also I see, like, I, I think I'm doing something right. People are being successful after they sort of leave my, my little world. Absolutely. What do you think are some unique challenges of leadership in technology specifically? So I think it comes down to two things. One, we often forget that while we all are technologists and we love technology, technology is enabler. And when you want to be, whether it be getting budget to adopt something or fee funding to go build something or just time and energy from a business unit to go try your new idea, it's understanding how do I translate that technology or that cool widget I've come up with into a value and a value prop that makes sense to the business. And I think that's one of the key things that as a leader in a technology domain is understanding how to talk to your audience in a language they understand. We often fall back onto our technology speak. And we often forget who we're talking to, whether that be a business manager or the board, they don't speak our language. And I think it, the successful leaders understand how to sort of translate and to also put it into terms that they can understand why it's important to do what you're doing or why this will make a difference. And it's not because I'm gonna give you 24 bits more space in your memory buffer. It's, I'm gonna allow you to, to do 12 more transactions a second. I'm going to allow you to track 12 more targets in real time. I'm going to allow you to stop before hitting that tree 12 microseconds earlier. Like those, putting it into terms that make sense for whoever the consumer of your technology or the business unit or business person you're trying to influence is absolutely crucial. And in cybersecurity, it's being able to understand risk from a business perspective, not risk while you've got 20,000 cross-site scripting errors on this web page, but rather you're exposing data that could be a HIPAA violation. That's how auditors talk. You know, you're gonna to have to spend X number of dollars to close these kind of gaps. And so therefore you're, it's a budget. That's a CIO conversation. You talk to a CISO, I'm reducing your risk as far as being able to operationalize your small team of effective cybersecurity hunters and be able to focus them on, on a more pressing problem. Those kind of, you know, again, it's the same problem, but I'm talking to the different audiences in a different way. So I think number one is being able to talk to the right audience. And then the other is to make sure you understand that we live in a cross-domain world and to get that different thinking into your team. So not just how you communicate out, but when I build my teams, I want people from across multiple domains, both technical and business. And I find that I learn more often from the business people, the federal CFO. I love my conversations with her because I always am learning something new about how, to, how revenue is recognized, how do federal contracts actually work. There's so much knowledge gained that it helps me then do my job better. Believe it or not, CFOs are an important part of the process about how we all get paid at the end of the day. And that wealth of knowledge is ultimately things that we can leverage to be able to figure out how can I be more effective. I'll give you a great example from the DOD. One of the really interesting things they do is a lot of times they'll take you know, technical program managers and for a period of time, they put them on the acquisition budget side. And a lot of them complain the first couple of days because they're like, well, why am I doing this finance stuff? I, I want to go build planes. I want to go deploy assets into the field. 
But understanding how money flows is crucial to how you then build your requests the next time to be able to get what you actually want. And if you understand the budget process and the acquisition process, you're going to better enable your mission to be successful long term. And so that cross training is really important and really crucial for being a successful leader. Very well said. I like that. I, I think learning how to communicate with people in other fields and other industries is a big one for IT at any level. Yeah. From the sole in-house IT specialist for a company who, you know, wants to pull his hair out on occasion because it's because <laughs> of the blocks in communication, being able to explain things all the way up to a CTO level. I think that's very important. And honestly, I think it's important for building more interest. And like you said, um, bringing in that workforce that anybody in the IT field knows that that this industry needs. If you are looking for a career and you hear that, you know, very technical jargon, things that you can change or things that somebody who's presenting can do, it can be interesting, but to a lot of people, it can also kind of go over their head. But hearing, you know, I help with how drones fly and how well they can sense things and how early they can stop to have updated X, Y, and Z systems for these organizations, it, it makes it a lot more real and almost more attainable. It sounds cooler, but also makes it more attainable, which is an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. But I think that's a very good call out for this industry. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Right. I've got two more questions as we kind of wrap up. The first one is in the role you're in, there's, I'm sure, definitely a fair amount of stress that comes in. What are some things that you like to do to focus on your own personal growth and development and on the family side as well and kind of do your best to maintain that that balance? So I think uh, it's a really good question. And work-life balance is something we all struggle with. And I think it took me having kids to finally kick me into the right direction. <laughs> before before I was married, I, my, I didn't have a work-life balance. I was working whenever I wasn't, you know, sleeping. So, but I think, you know, as far as keeping my level-headedness and sanity, my, my two little kids absolutely would keeps me grounded. And the fact that, you know, going to the pool, going on hikes, just doing things with the kids and doing things with family, prioritizing having dinner together is a, a key thing that, you know, just it allows you to sort of step away, but also decompress. And let's face it, you can't talk, you know, buffer overflows with a five-year-old. So it's, <laughs> we're, you know, it, it really allows you to sort of get out of your, out of your silo, out of your echo chamber on that respect. And then also, you know, having, you know, having a hobby, I personally, pre-COVID, you know, one of the things I enjoy doing is playing tournament poker. I'm hoping to get back to a little bit of that now that COVID's come out. But I think that, again, it's, a, it's something different. It's being able to do something that, you know, uses your brain, but in a very different way. Or, you know, another thing I like to do is cooking and being able to play chemistry in the kitchen. So having those kind of hobbies and being able to be consistent. But for me, I, right now, my five and three-year-old and my wife are really the thing that keep me grounded and sane. Very well said. Love that. All right. My last question is, what can we look forward to that you're allowed to disclose, of course, um, from Intel in the near future? What are you excited for? What should we be excited for? So that's a really good question. There's a lot coming out of Intel. I think if I were to point to a really geeky technical thing that is really foundationally game changer, we're all for it, is heterogeneous computing. You know, some people refer to it as chiplet strategies or die stacking. But if you look at the, where the architectures are going, and moving away from a monolithic, it's you know one CPU and that's all you need, or one GPU and that's all you need, to I need to have the right compute for the right workload at the right time where I need it. And that change in question is not a one size fits all. It's not, okay, I'm gonna have one compute for everything, but I can have 
the right compute. And if it's at a small edge, I need that kind of computer. If it's in a cloud, I may need to do multiple things based on what the workload needs at that moment. And so we're already seeing the shift in the architectures themselves. So our current platform has what they call E cores and P cores, so efficient cores and performance cores to be able to handle different kinds of workloads on the same platform, whether that be a laptop that can do gaming and Zoom calls and get the best performance for each, or in the data center, being able to host AI workloads, but also be able to do cloud scaling on the same architecture and get the best performance based on that heterogeneous approach. And that is one of the more exciting things as we see go forward, where now think about GPU and CPU, programmable logic like an FPGA, AI accelerators, all in the package. So different chiplets that can do different things. That's an exciting, really, you know, it's called geeky technical thing that's coming that's going to change the way we do computing. The same time, if we look at, you know, what are some of the really cool things that we've announced lately that's going to change the world? Quantum computing is exciting. We're not going to have a quantum computer on everyone's desktop. Let's just start there. You're not going to be playing the next Diablo 25 on a, on a quantum computer. <laughs> However, the things that we rely on, whether it be the AI and the cloud that's driving climate change decisions or the, the recommendation systems, the precision medicine, we're going to see those workloads make their way to quantum over the next 10 to 15 years. And some of the exciting stuff you've seen from Intel, we announced our, uh, our latest chip. It's being able to produce quantum chips, not as an exquisite platform that's really cool to take pictures of in some lab, but they're able to pump them out of the factory in the normal process. And that's the exciting thing that Intel is the expert in. There may be chip, you know, IBM and Google and others have ones with more qubits. And that's great. We want them to have as many qubits as they can get. Where Intel has been focusing on is how do we do it at scale? And how do we then populate a supercomputer of quantum chips? And so whether it be quantum computing, which is one of those big next generation architectures, or some of the, the more subtle neuromorphic computing architectures that are really changing the way we do these big science problems, I think are exciting times. And then I think the last thing that I would be remiss in not, if I didn't mention is the the process shrinkage. There is one of the things that Intel has been doing throughout its entire life is every generation we reduce and then we increase the architecture, shrink and increase, shrink and increase. And we have now hit the era of what they call 18A or angstrom. So we have gone beyond the nanometer as far as our, our transistor size. And just the thinking about the physics there is exciting of what we're going to need to do to be able to pack those transistors into that small space. And some of the three-dimensional designs that we're getting are just exciting from a technology from advancing the state of the art as we go forward. Very cool. Very, very cool. I love it. James, any questions around that or anything before, before we wrap up? No, I just, I want a quantum computer on my desk at some point in the future. <laughs> Other that, <laughs> <laughs> <Find> that quantum <laughs> computing. <laughs> right. Some light speed stuff going on here. Yeah. For Diablo 25, it's coming. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> well, then we will go ahead and wrap this up. Steve, it's been an excellent time talking to you. I'm really was really excited to to get you on our calendar. So I appreciate you coming out and joining us. Derek, James, thank you so much for your time today. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. A great interview. Thanks, Steve. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And then we will uh, probably have to bring you back at the beginning of next year to get your thoughts on DEF CON and, and how that all went and what caught your interest. Absolutely. Happy to come back and talk about it. Look forward to it. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you guys on the next one. Be safe, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. See ya.